route is to showcase and really highlight the wild public lands that we have in the western U.S. Um, and so one of the goals was to find these gems of public lands that are really remote but still get riders to communities where they can resupply regularly and provide kind of a more rugged, um, quiet backcountry experience than the Great Divide Route offers. There was this First Nation lady and she was coming the Hopi tribe. We had this amazing visit that night, Steve. It was just magical. We sat around the fire, the stars were, were out and clear, there was a full moon. And she would just tell me stories. I didn't really need to ask her any questions. I think for me, the trail magic I'm looking for, and I seem to find it everywhere, or it finds you, however you choose to view it, is um, it's the unique energy that's generated at the three-way intersection of human-powered travel, wild landscapes, and people. That's Kurt Rafsnyder and Clee Roy, and this is the Bike Pack Canada podcast. Hello again, all my bike packing friends. Welcome back to the Bike Pack Canada podcast. I'm your host, Steve O'Shaughnessy. So good to be with you again, but man, it's so fast. We just finished up with Matthew and we're here again. And I love it. I love every minute of it. I'm so happy that we've got the volume coming in. A couple of weeks ago, Clee Roy reached out to us to offer himself up for a podcast talking about the new Wild West route, which gets released today. GPS tracks go out today and I think there should be a new app for it coming out in a few days. Um, The Wild West route is a grand tour of the Intermountain West from Mexico to Canada, kind of a sister route to the Tour Divide. Klee is one of the pioneers to scout and complete the route, and I had the pleasure of talking with Klee about his experience. During the very rapid planning stages of connecting with Klee, we also reached out to Kurt Ruffsnyder of bikepackingroutes.org, and we all managed to connect online. Amazing. This was my first crack at a video conference, and I think it came together pretty well. Um, I apologize in advance for the audio quality, but that's just kind of the way it is. I really enjoyed connecting with Klee and Kurt to discuss this route. Uh, Kurt comes in a little bit late after Klee and I are talking, and, and you can just feel his passion. He's he's put so much work into logistics to pull this thing off that uh, he, he's just so absorbed in it. He's so passionate about it. It's awesome. And Klee is a super experienced bike packer and has some great stories to share, and he's got an awesome attitude, really good vibe. I really enjoyed talking with both of them. Um, if you're not familiar with bikepackingroutes.org, head on over there now and check it out. You could even like look at the map while you're listening to the podcast. It might be a good resource to kind of familiarize yourself with the areas that we're talking about. So they've built an amazing resource there. Tons of information from route details to bike recommendations. I really hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I know I say that a lot, but it's true. I enjoy all these conversations and I just hope that you're digging them too. And uh, this one is uh, top notch. Love it. Now I bring you Kurt Ruffsnyder and Clee Roy. Thanks for making the time, Steve. Oh, no worries. No, I was just going to get recording here and figured we'll just get the, some levels going. And so what, are you, um, what do you do for a living? I work as a, as a business consultant. Okay. I trained originally um, as an accountant in South Africa, and uh, I've been working sort of in the finance field, but more uh, forward-looking stuff than backward-looking stuff. Okay. Sounds kind of yeah. interesting. It sounds kind of sneaky and secret. Uh, no, not really. Um, <laughs> it's just a little bit different. I mean, most people, if you say you're an accountant, they kind of think you do taxes and bean counting, right? So right. I've tried to stay clear of that. So yeah, I work with, more with startup companies and um, I've worked in risk management in oil and gas for some time on and off. So 
Okay. Yeah, okay. nice diversity. It's been a, it's been a fun road actually. That's cool. So how do you get so much time off to do these um, crazy tours? Well, um, you know, spend more than you make. Um, and I've consulted a lot. I mean, I've had some jobs here and there for two or three years, but usually I've taken a break and then, um, uh, come back and consulted to different clients. And so, um, that's freed up the time to do the kind of stuff I've been doing. So I was looking yeah. at the uh, website last night. There wasn't much time for me to, uh, usually I like to prepare a little bit better. I'm not very yeah. well prepared actually, but I spent a lot of time looking at the website last night and I was getting goosebumps reading the description trail descriptions and, and, uh, just it's, it sounds super gnarly. It sounds really, really fun actually. It was, it was, a, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I'm super psyched. You've got, um, you've managed to get Kurt, um, lined up here. I've, I've been in touch with him obviously since before the the ride last year, but um, yeah, he's an he's an awesome guy, and so I'm being super keen to. Uh, it'll be nice to to uh, get him looped in because he was really the um, he was the genesis of that route. I mean, he mapped out most of it and scouted it the year before. Wow! So he's done it like a couple times then. Like, part, well, does he go go and do parts of it? You'll have to get him to explain. But the way I saw one of his stories, I think he drove and rode most of it almost sections over summer of two years ago okay and, and tracked obviously tracked everything and built i mean they built a 26 page pdf um handbook to go with it as in um nine sections 300 miles per section elevation profiles where there's water where there's camping gaps between water and resupplies like they built a really good um sort of data set to go with it yeah. and we we added a little bit here and there and um all the test riders kind of threw in their top five things they encountered or met or favorite campsites or whatever so they've now they're they're bringing on app apparently next month as well as the releasing the gps track later this month so yeah so it was kind of good timing because i i had heard that now it's may 13th so that's when everything's going live Oh no, the app was shortly after, right? They're going to release the GPS tracks and whatnot on the 13th. Yeah. Yeah. And that's partly what triggered me getting in touch with Sarah because I thought, you know, it'd be nice to get something going around the launch time for sure for Kurt. And so, yeah, the fact you've, you thought to loop him in is great. So, uh, oh yeah. yeah. And I, I don't know why I didn't think about it when we first talked and then I was, oh, he's probably just too busy. And I just sent him a oh. quick, quick note and he was like, yeah, but he's got phone calls all night tonight. So, he kind of was targeting for now, like 8.05 yeah. to call in. So I expect him any time now. So Yeah, he, he's a busy guy and apparently he doesn't sleep much. He's probably got his, um, you know, he's got that ultra MTB coaching um, gig and that's probably some of his, his clients he's working with. Yeah, it'd be good to talk to him about that. Yeah. 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 So how did you uh, get involved uh, in becoming a scout for um, this project? Um, yeah, purely a little bit of luck. I'd, I'd found, I've been on the bikepacking websites for obviously quite some time and, um, you know, following blogs of people riding Alaska to Argentina and all that kind of stuff. But I'd seen what they were doing and I thought it was super cool because, you know, the great divide was, uh, they celebrated their 20 years last year. Right. And, um, uh, so I was the year before I rode a big loop in Oregon and I thought, you know, that's the warm up to do 
the divide last year and if that goes well then this year I'll do a big South America trip that was kind of my one two three year plan and um, and then somewhere along the way I saw that they'd um, I saw they had this Wild West route in development which looked amazing and uh, and then somewhere actually after the deadline they uh, hey there's Kurt hey <laughs> just like that pow <laughs> awesome hey Kurt nice to meet you man you as well good to see hey. you Clee Hey, well, first time we've actually seen each other, I think, Kurt. We're, we're virtual friends. But, it's um, true. Feels like I've ridden in your tracks for quite some time, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's super awesome. cool. Th thanks for taking the time to uh, talk to us. You sound like you had a pretty busy day, so. <laughs> it has been busy, but yeah. this is thing going on, so it's exciting. Yes. Uh, cool. Klee was just telling about how he... Uh, came upon becoming a scout for uh for this route so uh uh welcome uh kurt ruff ruff snyder yeah ruff snyder ruff snyder um so yeah again thanks for for joining us so uh yeah uh, maybe uh go ahead clee and uh continue where you left off there sure and then yeah then let's hand it over to kurt a bit because we've got limited time with him absolutely um, absolutely but yeah kurt i guess i'd followed your guys website for a while backpackingroutes.org and um I saw the Wild West route under development, and then I guess after your closing deadline, I saw that you were looking for scouts, and uh, I banged in an application anyway because I was like, screw it, I was going to ride the Great Divide, but you can do that anytime. <laughs> Why not get on the cutting edge of riding a new route that seemed a little bit more out there? Yeah. And so, um, yeah, fortunately, um, you you, uh, you kind of got me on the team there, and um, oh, it was just 100% fun as you... Uh, as you probably know, because Kurt sort of, we were in touch during the course of the trip and we had a Facebook group and it was great. We could share um, kind of local bits and pieces with the other test riders and um, it was just, it was just three months of fun, but that's probably enough about me. So yeah, let's, um, let's get Kurt involved here while he, while we've got his, his limited time. For sure. So we'll wind it back to Kurt and, and I guess to start, like what, what kind of, uh, what was the catalyst for creating this route? Yeah, so, geez, um, <laughs> it came from a, a few different perspectives um, and directions over the past, geez, I mean, I think it, the, the idea goes back probably eight years or so, and it um, there were a few different people that had been thinking about another long-distance route um, inspired by the Phenomenal Great Divide mountain bike route and the popular that, that popularity that that had seen, and in, geez, I think around the time that Tour Divide was really getting popular and people were getting a little concerned about just how big is this event going to get, is is the route going to be able to support that many people going through that quickly, you know, in, in a short duration of time. Turned out that was not an issue at all. But um, folks like Matthew Lee, who organizes Tour Divide, and Casey Green, and Scott Morris all kind of were, were brainstorming together about a new route that could be west of the Great Divide mountain bike route that also would be a Canada-Mexico route. Um, and they, they thought about it and looked at maps off and on for a little while, and the idea kind of fell by the wayside for a while. Um, and then we launched Bikepacking Roots as an organization uh, in 2017, I guess, so like two and a half years ago. And one of the prongs of uh, the mission of the organization is creating... Um, really high-quality, long-distance routes with um, phenomenal resources and guides and educational materials. To if go I can interrupt, with. your website and is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Your website's oh, amazing. Well, like, you. for having only run that for probably less than two years, 
it was so comprehensive. I was I was saying oh. to um, Clee, I was getting goosebumps reading it because I was like, oh my god, I got to do some of these sections. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, sorry to interrupt. Oh. Go ahead. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, and so we we launched the organization in 2017. Had a few shorter routes in the like 200 to 1200 mile range, which 1200 still is not short at all. Um, but the biggest uh, route development project that we decided pretty early on to do was this this um, new route from Canada to Mexico. Kind of revived the conversations with um, Scott and Casey and Matthew to get their input on just what they were thinking and. We started this project uh, two and a half years ago, I guess, and in in the early stages it was like, okay, kind of big picture, like where do we even go in the Intermountain West? What are the really phenomenal places to target with this um, in terms of public lands, which is something we really wanted to highlight with this route, and where the name comes from, the Wild West, is actually kind of the the goal of the route is to showcase and really highlight the wild public lands that we have in the western U.S., um, and so one of the goals was to find these gems of public lands that are really remote but still get riders to communities where they can resupply regularly and provide kind of a more rugged, um, quiet backcountry experience than the Great Divide Route offers, but still have it um, generally kind of non-technical. It's not a true like single-track route. There's almost no single track on it at all. Um, so to make it relatively non-technical um, so that a, a broad audience of mountain bike tours can can tackle sections or all of it. Um, and then the progress was, you know, from, geez, I don't know, eight months of drawing lines on maps on a computer and talking to people different places along the way and getting input from, from all different folks to then uh, two summers ago I went out and scouted, mostly in my truck, um, the route. And it wasn't even just like following the line to see what it's like, but it was a lot of checking kind of th two or three parallel options to figure out which of these has the best flow from the sections to the north and the south, and which is the most enjoyable riding, and which has the you know most inspiring landscapes and the best balance of resupply versus remoteness and all that sort of thing. Um, so it, it was a pretty exhausting three three to four week endeavor of a tremendous amount of driving on yeah. rough stuff that was some of it was pushing the limits of my little truck. Um, <laughs> and then, and then after that, it was a kind of progression of working with land managers in different places when we ran into little hiccups here or there, sections of road that maybe aren't technically open to um, motorized vehicles, just making sure that it's okay for mountain bikes to be using them certain times of the year when they're closed to motorized vehicles. And um, as Clee discovered down along the Mexico border, there was one little challenging section. The, the very final section that he rode was probably... <laughs> of all of it not intended to be that way at all and so there's something with the blm down there to try to figure out the best best solution to that you got to earn your turns man it just gets hard sometimes right you don't want to earn them in the last like <laughs> no three I, hours. I'm, sure, I'm sure um and then the um one section of about 100 120 miles or so of the route crosses navajo nation right and so there ended up being a really phenomenal collaboration with their Department of Parks and Recreation and a nonprofit up there called Navajo Yes that's hugely promoting trail um, trail development and healthy lifestyles up there um, and a kind of burgeoning ecotourism, small-scale ecotourism ethic um, that more communities up there um, on the nation are trying to embrace as ways of bringing revenue in. Oh, for sure. Um, and so a bunch of different pieces that all just happen to be um, kind of falling into place at the same time 
And so we were able to get some really good support um, for this route. Some really enthusiastic folks up there helped uh, push it forward. And now there's, I think it ended up being the first um, long distance public, publicly open recreation route on, on Navajo Nation up there. And it's all using existing dirt roads. Um, so if no new, new trail construction or anything was needed, but had to go through a dozen meetings or so with folks up there and work with them to find some camping locations that would be as non-disruptive as possible and a permitting process for riders and all that. So that was a really, really cool part of the, the, pro, pro, the project overall. And there's some whole bunch of other really neat kind of offshoots of that, other little projects we're, we're involved with up on Navajo Nation now as a result. That's amazing. I saw um, or I was reading through your website, um, the logistics and then collaborating with them. So those campsites, they were non-existent and they, they, they went about and they made these camping areas for the route they're, specifically? Well, they're, <laughs> they're just designated places that camping is allowed. There's still right. nothing yep. on the ground. Okay, I get it. Uh, we've <laughs> been, talk been talking about um, as use increases for the route, the possibility of composting um, toilets, outhouses out at those locations. Well, it's a start, um, right? For yeah, it is, and it's something that they've never done before. They've never actually established here are places that you can camp, and let's make it simple and just say can't camp anywhere else, but these spots is fine. Um, so that made it um, really, I think, easily easy to understand for the riders that were out there. That's amazing. So far, and then yeah, the last last part of the development was the what Clee participated in last year was uh, kind of uh, a first take on let's get people out on one of these routes before we actually release it and use them to really give us in-depth feedback about how everything feels out there when they're riding because nobody had actually ridden the route. I'd driven all of it, but that's so different from what it feels like when you're out there on a bike. Yeah. And so we had, geez, I think 120 people expressed interest in being part of that and then had um, realized that most of them probably wouldn't follow through because they're you know, just enamored by a new route, but the reality of actually taking two or four or six weeks to, to ride something like that isn't in the cards for a lot of folks. So we had folks apply, and then there were like 60 that actually applied, and all of them um, looked like phenomenal people that had a lot of bikepacking experience, could provide really good input, um, wouldn't, wouldn't epic if things that we provided weren't quite what reality on the ground was like yet. Um, and I think we ended up with something like 40 people out there uh, that most rode um, probably between 500 and 1,000 mile sections of the route, and then Klee and Samuel Schlicht rode the entire thing and were the first two riders to do the entirety of the route. Awesome. Uh, which was small feat at all. I was very impressed yeah, at the, the amount of time to do it. And the, those riders also did a phenomenal job of building awareness for the route along the way in communities. Um, and so I was getting emails from folks in different towns being like, hey, we heard about this route. Um, what can we do to help? Or can we offer anything to riders in the future. And so it was a really good kind of first step at let's um, show that bike packers are actually going to be impacting these economies in small towns in a little way and have local businesses really excited about that from the start. Um, and so riders had little postcards about the route that they were handing out to, to folks along the way, and that, that really did a, a great job of um, spreading the word for that. So now we've got... Basically everything more or less ready to go with um, all the GPS data, giant waypoint file that Klee didn't have the pleasure of having, but <laughs> something like 1,500 waypoints, different things of use along the way that a lot of that came from um, data that the, the riders sent us from last summer. And then um, what else? We've got 100, about a 100-page 100 route guide 
um, PDF that'll be available for, for download. I think $20 donation is what we're asking for that, and that'll be a really comprehensive guide with overview maps of each of the segments and um, really detailed camping and water information and all of that. And then a mobile app that hopefully will be ready to go in just a couple weeks um, nice. that we're working with um, a group, um, Atlas Guides, or it's, it's going to be a new series called Nobby Guides, and they're mobile apps that are um, specific to um, long-distance hiking or bikepacking routes. And this will be their first bikepacking one. And it'll be super cool, GPS-enabled, all downloadable maps, so you can use it offline. And people can leave comments on different waterway points or anything along the way. And so when you get online, your comments get uploaded. And then other riders can see those and be like, oh, hey, cool. There's water there as of four days ago. Or, ooh, that stream's dry. It's August. And it's been hot. That makes sense. OK, I got a plan to uh, get to the next water source instead of using that one. So there's actually some kind of almost real-time information that can be relayed from one rider to the next through through that app so excited about all of these pieces yeah that the app is amazing why did you decide to to kind of recreate the wheel and develop a new app rather than reaching out to one of the existing you know uh application man, uh developers yeah, you know so, that already exists so we, that could... we aren't reinventing the wheel fortunately with this um that um, that little group out of Flagstaff has made apps for the Arizona Trail, the um, Appalachian Trail, Pacific Crest, all of those. And so it's using basically the same mm. structure, um, background skeleton of all of those, and um, just a few little tweaks here and there for, for bike packers, but pretty much um, that same same background. So it didn't actually take them much time to re-engineer right. anything at all. So That's a very cool feature to be able to have in your pocket while you're kind of you hit a town and then you get all these updates and it's like, Oh, smoke or fire here, go that way. You know, that's, that's amazing. That's awesome. Yep. Yep. If there are any detours that are looking like they're going to need to be there for a few weeks, we can easily create those and upload those to the, the app and those will automatically download for folks along the way and get a warning when they're back in, in cell service. So. I saw on the website, uh, in one of the frequently asked questions that, uh, people are concerned about bears on the route. Um, what can you tell people about, uh, these regions in terms of, uh, bears? Uh, there's black bears on pretty much the whole thing. And then grizzly bears, um, like true grizzly bear territory. If you look up what the DNR classifies as like breeding territory for them, it's like the northernmost 300 miles or so. And then the next like 500 miles down through central Idaho, um, there are very rare reports of grizzlies, but it's not considered a grizzly territory per se at this point. I, that's one concern I've heard from folks that are interested in riding the Great Divide mountain bike route, but they're really concerned, understandably, about grizzly bears. And so much of the northern part of that route is in grizzly bear country. And just not by design, just coincidentally, the Wild West route mostly sits west of um, modern or like current grizzly bear territory. Um, there may be reintroductions in um, some of the mountains along the route in the next decade or two. Did you see any uh, out there, Clee, when you're out? Um, fortunately not, except oh, one nice. very large teddy bear somewhere down in the south that had been tied to a pole on the side of the canyon. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of creepy. <laughs> Arizona. Oh, there's a lot funny. of creepy. Yep. Yeah, there's a lot of creepy. <laughs> Uh, so tell us more uh, about that. Did, how many sections have you ridden? Um, Me? Yeah, Kurt. Um, not much, actually. Uh, I rode a long section of central Utah when I was scouting stuff and did a big loop through central Utah, checking out a couple options. Um, there's a new, there's 
we're not going to release this right away, but there's an alternate that's going to go all the way over to Moab and then cut back west right. to the route, and it's going to get down into low desert, whereas most of the Utah part of the route actually is up high, like nine or 10,000 feet on plateaus. Right. And so I've ridden that whole um, section down to Moab. And then Arizona, I've ridden probably two-thirds of it, not in sequence, but just different places along the the route in the last couple of years, um, either for scouting or just on other trips. So at some point I would love to ride the whole thing or big chunks of it, but it's a big investment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think the, the Utah, um, the segment that goes through Utah was the one that I was super jazzed on because I've, I've ridden trail down there and I've ridden trail in Arizona, but you know, in small sections of, of, uh, small regions, it'd be amazing to ride through there because I just, the vistas and the environment it's, and the terrain and the traction and the, yeah. Clear. What, what did you think of the Utah section? Was it what you were expecting or were you surprised by it? Um, yeah, good question. I am, um, you know, I've been down that way. I'd actually seen Skyline Drive. You know, I rock climb a lot. So I'd been down to Maple Canyon okay. quite a lot, which yeah. is near Ephraim and Mantee. Yep. And, um, one time I'd driven over there from Moab actually and seen Skyline Drive. I remember stopping in the top and it was May and I remember looking at this thing going like, holy smokes, I bet you could ride this thing. I remember looking on the map. And so actually what one of the things that piqued my interest when I first saw the Wild West route is you said you go over Skyline Drive. But I think some of the coolest stuff in Utah is, um, so Steve, I guess one of the cool things is you know, whenever you talk to people about this, they always, oh, so did you come in on Highway 62 or whatever? You go, no, I came over kind of some back roads. And, oh, did you come on Highway 17? And you're like, well, actually, no, I came over that room there. It's called the McGuian Room. And then either they don't know what you're talking about <laughs> or they're local. And they go, holy crap, you came over there? Like, we ride that on our ATVs or we take that. And then they look at you again. And so basically you traverse the states from Canada and Mexico riding like basically geologic and geographic features, which I thought was really cool. That's how the whole thing just unfolded between deep river valleys, big mountain passes. And then, yeah, the Utah section specifically, it had those plateaus like the Aquarius Plateau and it had, um, that's where the Pando was occurred Mm -hmm. at Fish Lake and um, just remote places. You'd ride, you'd ride six, seven, eight hours and like see nobody or see two trucks passing you in the distance. And, and then, yeah, you'd be boom down into the canyons. Um, Yeah, it was, it was, I mean, I loved the whole thing, but yeah, Utah was, was pretty sweet. Riding those plateaus was neat. Um, Yeah, there were some really nice features. Yeah, the the downside to a lot of Utah is that when it rains, it gets impassable. Just yeah, I can imagine. It's that's that's the nature of the Western Colorado Plateau region over there, and there's just no way around that. And so it's that's a section that people definitely are gonna have to plan for. That if there are if there are storms in the forecast, you know, carry enough food to wait for stuff to dry out if it does rain. Spend a day along the way. Um, Yeah. And check weather forecast before going into some of the longer remote sections. Does that kind of um, um, soil, does it dry out fast? Once the sun comes out, yeah, It'll dry the surface dries out really quickly and you can get back on it. Right. Um, yeah. Yep. Steve, I don't know if you're familiar, but it's, uh, Kurt probably knows it. It's basically like a, it's a clay. Right. And so when it gets wet, it becomes halfway to concrete and it's just this, <laughs> God awful gumbo that builds and yep. your tires, your your chain stays are jammed. Like you do anything to avoid it. Like you're pushing through the bushes, you're carving your legs up, you're down to probably two, three miles an hour, um, pushing, like and just yep. trying to keep out of this stuff. 
So suddenly a 95 mile section Skyline Drive at two or three miles an hour, like it's a whole nother ball game in terms yep. of water, food, you're at 10,000 feet, I got stuck in a lightning storm. It was, um, it was a bit epic, yeah. That uh, sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like that around here in the Kootenays. Actually, we have a lot of clay, and there's sections that yeah, you, know, you get a bit of rain, and it's just it, one. It's like an ice rink, and then it's like it just jams into everything, right? So yeah, yeah. But we don't have like hundreds and hundreds of miles of it <laughs> on a bike packing <laughs> route. But um, yeah, wow, it's amazing. Um, you had mentioned too, Kurt, uh, about the the rating system that um, is on your website. So mm -hmm. the the BPR route rating scale. Yeah, so that was something we developed a few years ago, um, trying to think about just how, what's the easiest way to communicate to riders how hard a route is, because everybody comes comes at it with such different perspectives and different backgrounds, and they might be good technical riders, but um, not like huge climbs, or they might be have super good endurance and be like uh, road tours that don't necessarily want a lot of technical stuff. And so we decided that the best way to do it is actually split apart the technical side of things and give it kind of a technical rating for how um, technically challenging a section is and then uh, just kind of a, more of a terrain-based rating that's more just like what are the, the road or trail surfaces like and how much relief is there, um, how steep are the climbs, that sort of thing. So it's almost like kind of the first one's aerobic and the second part is more technical, mm -hmm. difficult. And so we rate each, um, there's nine segments overall and we give each segment a, a separate rating. Um, and in general, it's most of the route is kind of, I would say, non-technical to moderately technical Jeep road at most. I don't know. Would you agree with that, Clee? Yeah, it's not really technical at all, but it's, I guess, yeah, I, I thought that's a great rating system. I saw one also a while back on bikepacking.com, and you, know, you place yourself in different categories, and, you know, I came out as, like, moderately enthusiastic or something on a different <laughs> rating. Um, you know, I use a couple other metrics. I mean, for me, it's always um, how much vertical is there. So mileage is the first, how much vertical, because that really moves the needle. And then what terrain is it on? Because some of it is quite... Um, like it's quite rough and then you're definitely going a bit slower and then you know wind and all the other stuff are the kind of variables but you know I mean I'm Kurt you and you and the gang I mean you guys are like the super hardcore bike races but I'm a kind of more touring guy I mean I'm 50 now my benchmark I've found for these kind of rides you know like whether it's a bunch of some single track mixed terrain I've got a little um metric of 10 kilometers an hour six mile an hour elapsed time Mm -hmm. because I don't even track the riding time. I mean, that's why I don't have a GPS. I'm not really, like, I'm an accountant, but I try not to, like, track all the numbers. But <laughs> it's um, to me, it's like you meet some people, you're going to talk to them. At some point, you got to resupply. I mean, you kind of keep moving all day, but my kind of metric was 10Ks an hour, 6 mile an hour. And so if you're banging out a 100K day, you better put aside at least 10 hours. And sometimes, obviously, on the prairies where it was flatter, you can blast along, but they throw a headwind in there, you're back to 10K an hour. Yeah, so, exactly. And I'm yeah. riding like 2.6 or 3 inch tires, so it's, you know, but that kind of, as a gauge, I thought that was always, it was always pretty accurate, give or take. So that was sort of my, my way to plan it out. Yeah, that, that, that's a really good way to do it. And that's, I think, this route, all of our routes are developed not with racers in mind, but with tours. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, that's the kind of attitude that we all try to put ourselves into when we're trying to plan out these routes. And, um, you know, I think at some point people probably will race on this route, and we're trying to like downplay that and discourage yeah. it for the next few years, um, especially 
for the the Navajo Nation part of it, where this is something brand new for them, we want to make sure that everyone's on like their best behavior and not rushing through and not ignoring camping rules and permits and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought yeah, that was think, a pretty I think important. Your, your rule of oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was just gonna say I I I, I could I really appreciated that you guys kind of um, took that path in terms of like trying to just like, don't race it, like let's get it established. Um, because yeah, the racers are going to sleep wherever, right? They're going to just pick a place and sleep and if they get caught and you tick some people off and you've worked so hard to get this route developed. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. And so. I, I think also with, with this route, I think a lot of folks are going to underestimate just how rugged it is mm-hmm. and just how remote some of the sections are that there's going to be a mentality like, Oh, it was inspired by the great divide route. So it's going to be like that. And like, yeah, in theory it is, but you know, people manage to ride cross bikes on the Great Divide route. I wouldn't do it. People do. That would not work on this route. Um, That'd be torturous. Yeah, and people can do like people can do 150 mile days, 200 mile days pushing hard on the Great Divide route. That's not going to work on this route most places. There's just too much climbing. It's too rugged. Well, I was I was surprised that you said 2.2 tires uh, in the kind of the the bike description because I I I ride plus a lot. And I've just been riding 2.3s on my single speed. And it's like, oh, my God, they're so harsh <laughs> compared to a it's, plus tire. It's like, I think I would. True. Yeah. And yeah, then what, what, kind, what be, kind of tire I, would you recommend on something like that? I would I would probably just run a regular 2.4 knobby mountain bike tire. Like um, full mountain bike. Like I run Chronicles. That, would that be a little too uh, fast rolling you would, or something like, like that? It would be comfortable. You don't necessarily need that much flotation. Right. Um, for the route, but it would definitely be comfortable for the rougher stuff. Mm-hmm. I would probably run something like a two four ardent or mm-hmm. something like that ah. that was really last for a while. Right. Um, this route a little bit more volume definitely is nice on a loaded bike on some of these rough sections. Sure. Uh, I'm sure some people really like two sixes or something like that um, on on to tour this route. But yeah, you'd be, you'd be surprised at the number of people that I've been getting emails from that are like, you say it's a mountain bike route, but could I ride something with two inch tires or inch and a half and like no no like oh. we're trying to really blatant about just like yeah two twos will work anything less than that no good um the riders that we had a few that rode long sections last year on rigid forks Ooh. um drop bar rigid bikes yeah. and age in general we're like you should recommend suspension for folks right for this route like not because it's technical just because it's rough um, there's some long descents. Idaho has some incredibly long descents, like 4,000 plus foot descents where you don't pedal. Like you just go down. Oh, amazing. And a few of the riders that I ran into last summer when I was up there, um, that were on red breakfast with, and they're like, yeah, we have, um, 160 millimeter rotors on our bikes and really wished we had some rotors on here. Things <laughs> yeah, I read too, that too. too. Hot. So just like things like that, that never even crossed my mind to recommend. Super interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. low gearing, big, big rotors suspension copy tires <laughs> well, yeah like really go, go in, unless if you're not racing go burly go burl as burly as you can go really i agree yeah i completely agree. if you want to get to the end yeah on the same wheel set <laughs> yeah what oh, was your favorite cool. section of the whole route quite a few people have asked me that I, I i tend to say i really like the whole thing like i mentioned earlier the sort of progression of the terrain mm-hmm. um I actually viewed, so Steve, there's roughly, I think it's nine sections of plus minus three, 300 miles each, but they sort of aggregated, I thought, into thirds. So the top third coming north to south was the Idaho-Montana kind of 
kept crisscrossing the border and um, down to basically uh, Sun Valley, Ketchum Valley, Ketchum, Idaho. So that was probably the first thousand miles or so. And that was mountains, forests, tons of rivers, beautiful Pacific Northwest kind of, um, you know, trees and really like that. And then I did a little detour. I tacked on the, um, what is it called, the Smoke and Fire 400, mm -hmm. which is actually a 450-mile loop out of Boise. The guys race it every September. So I really wanted to ride that because I'd, I'd wanted to go and ride a bit more in the Sawtooth. So a friend of mine from home came down and joined me. We banged that out in eight days. Which is a really, that was some of my favorite riding. And a lot of vertical. That was awesome. And then um, that got me back on track at Sun Valley. And then it kind of becomes the prairies to link up to Park City, which is halfway. And then there's that awesome sort of Utah section we talked about. And then the last third is more the desert. And... Um, you know, it is a little bit more of a survival game down there. Um, longer pulls between, like, resupplies and water. And I think, Kurt, where do, it's about 90, 95 miles, that longest section on the Navajo land without yep. water. Yeah, that's and, the, you know, of the whole route. So there was, I took 10 liters. It was, oh. um, to me, that was just over a day. Um, and I, you know, I camped dry up there and got out the next morning early. Um, and... Uh, you know, so it is a little bit more of a survival game. You don't have that much margin of error if you have like some bad mechanic you can't fix because it is pretty remote. Um, but it's dark and it's beautiful. So I think all of them, uh, they're all unique. But Kurt, I think the, um, I did like that Idaho, Ketchum, Sun Valley, Stanley, that sort of area. Uh, um, I've wanted to do some alpine climbing in there for many years since I saw it probably 20 years ago on a climbing trip. As I saw the sawtooth, I man, I need to get back there and got in on a bike. That was really cool. But yeah, yeah the whole the whole transition of the route over all the different terrain was was also a highlight. For yeah. Sure. Oh, I'm I'm not surprised to hear that. Yeah, I think the Idaho section of it, or that like the northern uh, 800 miles, something like that, from the Canadian border to Sun Valley Ketchum area, is definitely going to end up being the most popular. Um, for, for people riding just individual segments of it. I think that that one's going to be really popular because it's pretty easy to get to Whitefish. You can fly into Whitefish. It's like 80 miles from Whitefish on back roads and dirt roads to get to the start of the route. And then you can fly out of Sun Valley, catch them at the little airport there. And that makes a really nice self-contained um, route. And yeah. then down in Arizona, there are a few. I think since you've been there, we've got a couple more, maybe three more, um, water sources that we've worked out with um, private landowners along the route that are fine with riders stopping by and, and filling up. So cool. that will definitely alleviate things. We still have a long stretch on Navajo, but farther south, it pretty, it's pretty consistent now at like between 30 and 40 miles between water at the farthest. So that oh. definitely has helped in a few of the longer stretches in southern Arizona. Nice. Yeah, that's something I really don't have a lot of experience with is being remote in a desert carrying like what 20 pounds of water <laughs> you're carrying that, that much yeah yeah that's, that's a lot um luckily there really is just that one section that's really yeah. long yeah um and it's that's also the most remote section in arizona yeah. um but stuff farther south when you're down lower in this the true sonoran desert um where it can be quite i mean down there it's 100 110 115 degrees Ugh. in the peak of the summer. so hopefully nobody's trying to ride that then that's really like May, April to May down there, and then September to October to November are the ideal times to be down in that part of the state. 
Um, and so that part's not nearly as remote. So if, if you do run into trouble and run out of water, like you will see occasional cars on the route and you're not going to feel like you're just completely out on your own. Right. Um, yeah, it's sometimes I, I think about, um, you know, bike pack Canada has had a couple summits and, um, mm-hmm. there's, there, there've been a couple overnighters and, uh, before the summit started and last year the overnighter was was fairly challenging it it, canmore is it's a weird town and we we got dumped on in the morning so (laughs) hearing about yeah yeah, and the route we took i mean i i have a a, quite a bit of mountain biking experience and i i sometimes wondered if if there was someone on there that didn't have as much mountain bike experience if they would just be hating it and uh for a route like this is this is a gnarly route like you want to have some experience to do the Wild West route, I would say. Definitely. Um, yeah, I think so. But we did have a few people do it last summer that had never done a long bikepacking trip before. And we had a couple riders in their mid-60s that did long stretches of it. Um, and they were fine. There were two riders that definitely did not identify themselves as mountain bikers at all that rode um, down into southern Utah from the Canadian border. And then they got stopped in the fall by um, winter moving in early. Mm. And... Had to bail off the route, unfortunately. Um, they all did fine, and there was one pair um, from the Netherlands that um, contacted me, and they had ridden a bunch of Colorado Trail, I think, and then the, our Plateau Passage route across Utah, and then they linked up with the Wild West route in um, northern or in southern Utah and rode down south through Arizona on the Wild West, and they were pulling a trailer, oh. which. Man. I was shocked that they rode the Plateau Passage with it, but then they continued in the Wild West route, and they're like, yeah, it worked, but we wouldn't do it again. So it is one of those routes, like, you can get by if you're not a mountain biker on it. Like, you need to have a mountain bike, but um, you don't need to be a particularly adept technical rider at well, all. Well, that's good. To, you just need to know what you're getting into, right? Yeah. 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 So. We've tried to be as clear as we can with all of our um, guide resources to just kind of set expectations as 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 well as possible for people so they do know what they're getting into. That's awesome. So, Kurt, do you, can you stay with us, or do you have to take I, yeah, off? Yeah, I, I got about eight more minutes here, and then I got to <laughs> run. It's okay. Um, tell us something else. Uh, share a trail story from there, or um, is there something else you want to promote? Other projects? Oh, other projects. Well, we've got, as far as root projects go, we've got um, – our next big one we're working on is in the upper Midwest, in northern Minnesota, northern Wisconsin, northern Michigan, which is super cool for me because I grew up in Minnesota and spent a lot of time up in the Northwoods. Um, and that's an area that we've been getting lots of requests from folks to to look at for route development because there just isn't a lot up there. Um, and so we've got kind of a skeleton of a route um, that we're going to start working in more detail on and working with some folks that live up on the North Shore Lake Superior for that section and a bunch of folks down in um Northern Michigan have, have reached out and uh, shared a bunch of ideas for, for routing on that one. So that's going to be an, a mix of um, kind of dirt road style riding that links single track networks because there's been so much trail development up there focused in and around communities in like the Shawamagon area around Hayward and up um, around Marquette on the, the peninsula um, in northern in the UP of Michigan. And then around Duluth, there's a huge network that's in a, a trail that goes most of the way around Duluth. Um, now, so linking in with those, so it'll be kind of dirt road with lots of trail options along the way. So a little bit of a different style there. Um, we've been on in a different whole different part of our mission um, is related to advocacy, and we've been involved in a number of different um, 
kind of public lands related issues, um, some up in Utah with the, the National Monument um, changes in that area, Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante, which are both uh, moderately popular with bike packers, and we've got routes that go through um, both of those, and so there's been a big push periodically over the last couple of years to get public input on some of the proposed changes up there in management um, from the bikepacking community just because we've been, as a community, we've been a group that isn't really engaged in any way in, in any of those processes. So we've been trying to, to get a little bit more of a voice in some of those and in a few other areas um, farther north in Montana issues um, in a small way. And we've been working hard to just help educate bikepackers, um, specifically in the U.S., uh, about the importance of public lands for what we do, where we ride, and where we bike pack, because it's such a critical um, part of the mosaic of the western U.S., and in, in a lot of the parts of the east, even though there aren't nearly as many public lands there, that's where so much bikepacking happens. And the, the future of public lands has definitely been kind of tenuous at times um, in the last few years, and things are looking up right now based on some, some recent things that have passed through Congress. But... Um, we as bikepackers definitely need to be more engaged in all of that, so we're trying to take take a lead in um, helping promote more of that that activity. And so that's been been rewarding. It's challenging as a small organization to start to have a voice, so it's kind of a gradual building process for us to do. Um, and then we've got a few other projects that I can't share too much about yet, but <laughs> work, working with communities in different places nice. um, with uh, kind of trail uh, or bikepacking route development. Um, as as economic development um, means in in a few parts of the West, so mostly still a uh, Western focus for us, but getting into the Midwest is really exciting for us, and there's definitely a lot of demand for that. So that'll be the next next big project, and then we have one one final route in Arizona that we is basically all done. We just haven't gotten around to putting together the route guide for it yet, which is about a 600 mile um, kind of rugged dirt road, Jeep road route from Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport to Grand Canyon and back. So it's a long, skinny um, loop that basically people can fly into the airport and pedal away from the terminal and end up at Grand Canyon a week later or so and then turn around and ride back a slightly different way. So really, it's a really cool, another one transitioning through a bunch of different landscapes and biotic communities and ecosystems. So, so do you have a job? Like, how do you do all this stuff? <laughs> it's crazy. Me? I've got... For better or for worse, I've got like three jobs oh, right now. Goodness. I'm a geology professor um, at Prescott College here, okay. and so that that fuels like my interest in geology and landscapes fuels a lot of the exploration for this. Um, and I'm actually stepping away from that job um, at the end of the semester, um, so that'll be uh, freeing up some space. And then um, I have a kind of endurance coaching, mountain bike coaching business um, that I work with primarily ultra. Um, I guess everything from like kind of 100-mile racers to ultra-endurance mountain bike and bike packers. Um, and I've been doing that for these four years now, I think, which is really fulfilling. Neat, neat way to share a lot of the expertise that I've gained through my own racing with other people and see them succeed at, at meeting some of their goals. And then bikepacking routes is, I mean, it's definitely more than a full-time job for me, time-wise. But um, at this point, it's just like a little token, token bit of income so far, but hopefully that'll start to start to change as we grow, and the goal is to start hiring a couple part-time people to help out in the next year or so, um, so making making progress in that direction. That's a, that's amazing. I'm sure I speak for everyone. Thanks for doing everything that you do to promote the sport and build the <laughs> routes and, and uh, yeah, tackle the logistics of making it all happen. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. 
Oh, it's yeah, it's it's awesome, and I've got a really strong team behind me. Um, Caitlin Boyle was co-founder of Bikepacking Roots, and she's another well-known ultra racer, but really passionate outdoor educator and um, conservation advocate. And then we've got an amazing board of directors with ten folks that range from educators to advo- uh, mountain bike advocacy folks to um, folks with a lot of experience in nonprofit uh, management, kind of the whole whole suite of types of of folks and they're all behind us and helping guide our organization. So it's couldn't, couldn't do it without all of those folks and then lots of different volunteers who have chipped in here and there with little bits. Um, people like Clee that have been instrumental in making the Wild West route what it is now. And yeah, it's it's definitely a big group that's been involved so far. It must be pretty exciting. Is there? I know you've just mentioned a bunch of groups and a few people. Are do you want to give any shout outs to to people while we're here? <laughs> Or is the list um, just too formidable to? No, there's. I mean, there's. There's so many. A, a few that bike packers might know would be folks like Matt Nelson, who's the director of the Arizona Trail Association, which is the only um, national scenic trail that welcomes with open arms mountain bikers. Um, so he's he's been a huge help with with this. Um, Casey Green, who's not on our board anymore, but he helped get things off the ground. He used to work for Adventure Cycling Association and has since moved on, but he played a huge role. Um, Gabriel Amadeus Tiller, who is the director of the Oregon Timber Trail Foundation, is on our board and has been really important in um, some of the, the final steps of, of this root project. Jeez, uh, who else? <laughs> mentioned Caitlin already. Instrumental in, in so much. Um, I didn't mean to put any pressure on you. <laughs> it's, it's too many people to think of all at once. I understand. Yeah. yeah, I get it. Well, um, Kurt, thanks for hanging out with us. It was so awesome to have you here. Um, can you tell My everyone? Thanks for the invite. Can you tell everyone where they can find you out there in the internets? Where they can find me? Well, yeah. bikepacking roots. Um, visit bikepackingroots.org, um, and roots is R O O T S. So visit that. Um, we'll be releasing all the Wild West route information guide, all of that on uh, Monday, May thirteenth. And so it should be all available at that point. The mobile app should be available shortly thereafter. And we've already got a few folks out on their route right now and quite a few planning on being out there later this summer. And we're also working on just arranging a very informal kind of group, grouped apart, completely non-competitive, just if folks want to start from the northern border in, I, I need to double check the date, I think July 9th is is the date that we have on the calendar right now for folks that want to especially ride like the Idaho section of it or something like that. Um, that'll be happening midsummer. Um, so if if folks aren't involved with bikepacking routes already, um, hit our hit up our website, become a member. It's free to join. Um, and uh, yeah, I think everything folks will need to know about the Wild West route is either up there already or will soon be there. Hey Kurt, and just um, Kurt, just from my side, thank, thanks again. And um, if you want to do anything like with Sam and I, a Q&A or anything else you need, um, yeah, just shout oh, out. We'd be happy to help out. Fantastic. I appreciate that offer. See if we can get a hold of Sam wherever he is in the world right now. <laughs> oh, he's riding somewhere. I think it was Israel or somewhere last. Yeah. But yeah, he, he was totally open to it. So yeah, if you wanted anything, um, just Q&A or whatever else from us, yeah, we'd be happy to help out for sure. Fantastic. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Thanks again. That was a hell of a lot of fun. Thanks. Uh, Kurt. I'm glad awesome. to hear it. I knew it would be. Right on. All right. Thank you both. Thanks, Kurt. Okay. Have a good night. Later. Bye-bye. Oh, that was awesome. I'm so glad that came together like that. Yeah, nice uh, nice work there, Steve. That was great. Thank you. Oh, it's not over yet. Do we, what do you want to share? You must have some stories from the trail to share with us. 
Oh, I got plenty. I'm sure you've got a little um, checklist of questions or whatever. So uh, why don't you fire away? I'm happy oh, to man. answer. Well, uh, like, like I say, I was a little unprepared um, because I was just finalizing Matthew Cady's um, podcast about the BT 700 in Ontario. So I was kind of ripping on that. And then you reached out to Sarah and I was like, I had a different plan as far as what I was going to put out. So um, for the next podcast, so it's, um, but this is important because um, it's a time crunch. So I don't know. Um, usually what I ask people I talk, I talk with, is like kind of, how did you come? Uh, what's your biking history? Like, did you, were you a tourer before? Did you bike tour or just a trail rider or yeah. What's your, what's your story? Okay. Um, I'll try. <laughs> Everyone's got their own path, I guess. Um, uh, I did, I have pondered this one. Um, I actually, I started reading when I was young and I was always fascinated by travel accounts and travel nonfiction. And, um, I, yeah, I must have read something about people bike touring because I remember when I was 12, I, uh, I went off on my first bike tour with a buddy. We were, I guess, just at the end of junior school back in South Africa. And I remember I just inherited 50 bucks from a great uncle and I bought my first geared bicycle, I bought like a 10 speed. This was, oh, I don't know, 1980, 81 or something. And, uh, I, I used my granddad's, uh, uh, ammunition pouches from World War II and strung a little, made a little set of panniers on the back and um, boot, 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 like kind of bootstrapped this thing and, and helped my buddy rig out his bike and we went off camping for a few days out um, on the sort of ocean road outside the town and I guess credit to my folks, we were only 12 there and his folks too, they let us go off uh, biking together and I'd been like surfing with this buddy and we went off for a few days. I remember we had so much fun and uh, um, we had so much when we called our, our moms and asked if one of them could bring us more food. We wanted to stay a bit longer. And so we, uh, um, I remember the people we met on our bikes were great. And there was uh, an old guy living in a camper van, obviously winding down his savings and his retirement living out in this campsite. And we were fascinated with his rig and we'd have tea with him. And so that was kind of the start of it. But um, I, I kind of got into quite a few different sports around that time. Besides, I wasn't really interested in the school sports. It was kind of colonial South Africa, you know, cricket, soccer, tennis, all this kind of stuff. But in quick succession, I kind of started surfing, uh, biking, and rock climbing. And those have kind of been my passions for literally the last four decades. And um, so, yeah, I guess um, I rode my bike and I climbed and I surfed. Those were the main ones. And then uh, I did some triathlon around the university days. Um, and I remember my bike got stolen and mountain bikes were just coming to South Africa in the late 80s and I bought a used uh, mountain bike probably the late 80s and uh, started mountain biking. Um, I just had no interest in riding uh, you know, with the traffic on the paved road. And I didn't really tour because I would read all these books. Uh, Josie Dew, Dervla Murphy, The Irish Lady. Um, there were quite a lot of bike tours and I always liked their stories and how they engaged with locals but I wasn't really enthusiastic about riding on the pavement with traffic and so um, I guess fast forward to about 15 years ago I started doing some like what was almost bikepacking back then I put a lightweight pannier rig on my hardtail mountain bike and I started riding the um, the Gulf Islands like from Vancouver because you could ride the ferries easy no yeah. traffic um, and then riding single track I've always liked single track and so you could base camp and then go and ride single track. And so, yeah, then, you know, over the last 
then I had back surgery or 2006 and I was kind of off biking for a while. I had to rehab that and I kept climbing. But um, actually, um, I used to live in Canmore and work in oil and gas in Calgary. And um, Ryan and the gang at Rebound hooked me up with uh, a good full suspension 29er. It was a niner oh, maybe seven, mm. eight years ago. And um, I started riding again because my back could handle it then with more suspension and big wheels and so then I saw Tour Divide, I saw you know the Ride the Divide and I started clearing into this bikepacking about four or five years ago that essentially a new sport was arriving and with better gear and technology and GPS you could go and ride in the wilderness without traffic and do cool stuff and so that was sort of the the genesis of how I started getting into it um, more and more yeah that's awesome. It sounds kind of like, I mean, I, I, I just rode trail, a lot of trail kind of growing up. And then, you know, and then when I got into my 40s, a uh, buddy kind of talked me into doing a, my first bike bikepacking race. Yeah. And um, uh, we scratched on it. And uh, uh, and I, I, I thought at first I would never do it again because I'm like, why, why would I do this again? It didn't, it didn't really appeal to me. But after I got home, I felt so crappy for not finishing it. So I went and did another one. So I've, I'm super inexperienced um, in terms of bikepacking. But yeah, like in the last four or five years, there's been a, an influx in, in, in tracks and races and gear. And it's, 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 a crazy, uh, it's a crazy growth rate. It's been unreal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah and I guess partly from my side, um, I guess my sports have always been a little bit subculture. Like, like mm. I said, it's kind of been four decades of surfing, rock climbing, and and mountain biking. And uh, you know, mountain biking's gone more mainstream. You know, climbing now we've got you know free solo. We have got Alex Honnold and the Dawn Wall. They're mainstream. That's insane. The crags, getting, the crags are getting pretty overrun. Um, you know, the surf. I've I've surfed a lot in Tofino and Oregon, and I used to surf in South Africa. And, you know, the surf is, I don't want to say too crowded and, and the cliffs are getting a bit too crowded. And I really feel I've had like four of the best decades. And, you know, I'm smart enough to sort of quit while I'm ahead. I don't want to be the crotchety old guy at the crag because everyone's half my age now usually. <laughs> um, you know, I don't want to be the crotchety old guy like going in my day, you know, we did this and this. Like, it doesn't really matter. The kids are young and strong. And with the younger groups from the gyms, they climb in groups now. And so... You know, partly bikepacking came along at a really good time that I could get back in the wilderness, um, which is kind of full circle to how I started in my teens, like climbing wild stuff in Africa back in the day when it was virgin rock. And uh, yeah, it's kind of like a new sport and there's just so much cool stuff to do. Um, yeah, it's kind of, it's it's sort of my, I'm, I'm 50 now and it's kind of a change of a change of direction that I'm just doing more and more of these big bike trips. Yeah, I'm not too much younger than you. I, I feel that. I feel the same about that. It's like we've kind of discovered a, a new, it's not really that new. It's always, it's riding bikes, but it's just so much more enjoyable. It's like you don't have to, uh, it doesn't matter what big drop you did or it, it's, that's all put aside, you know, now it's just like the solitude and nature and pedaling a bike, self-sufficient. It just, I, yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Our timing is impeccable. It's fantastic. <laughs> have you? Have, oh, we, oh, we just got lucky. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. So, have you done any racing, uh, bike pack racing? Not, not actually. I used to like road race a little and do mm -hmm. triathlon and a few mountain bike races, but that was like 
30 years ago really. Um, I, uh, I'm not really a racer, like I said earlier, I'm more of a tourer, but it, it, it amazes me. But I am, uh, it is a way to meet people. And so I think you've interviewed Leonard Pretorius. Not, not yet. We keep missing each other, oh. but maybe tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you know, for those on the, on the, the listeners, he's the founder of the BC Epic 1000, which is grown in popular. And didn't you race it a year or two ago, Steve? Yeah, I wrote it last year. I finished okay. it last yeah. year. Yeah. Awesome. It was what a blast. It was so fun. Like just to, one, just to be able to finish one was yeah. amazing. And then just, uh, to, to, I mean, I'm no Evan Deutsch, right? Uh, the guy who won <laughs> it, right. It's, he's just insane. But yeah. just, just to, just to set some goals of how long you want to go. And like, I've never ridden that far before in, in a day. Right. So to, to exceed those goals and then, then to actually finish, you know, and feel pretty good. You know, it was, it yeah. was amazing. And you're right about the camaraderie, right? I talk yeah. about it all on here all the time. It's just, yeah. no one's, no one's out to beat anyone or no one's out to, or it doesn't matter. It's just like a big party on bikes kind of in a way. It's super fun. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, hey, that's that's an awesome ride. Good job. So yeah, oh, he's thanks. actually got another one called the Buckshot, which he had on the September weekend last year and the year before. And both years they were cancelled because of forest fires. Yeah. So he's he's doing it um, a different version of 460k over the May long. So I'm actually gonna, and he's doing it very low key. It's just like he has the GPS if anyone wants to ride it. So I'm gonna go in and. Uh, it's probably three and a half days at my kind of pace. I don't know if I'm going to try and squeeze it in, but partly I'm doing that as a bit of a warm up for the Kenai 250, which is the start of the kind of next big trip I'm doing, which I mentioned to you on the phone the other day. And that's the um, 250 mile, 70% um, single track in southwestern Alaska, just south of Anchorage. Oh, and I've had my eye on that for a few years. And um, yeah, so I'm not really, again, at sort of touring pace, maybe 60 mile a day. It's a four-day ride for me. So I'm going to show up. It's June 21. It's the solstice. It's Alaska. It's the start of a big trip for me. So I'm going to go and ride that. But, yeah, it would be nice to just meet up with some folks and maybe have some company on the route. Um, but, yeah, that's that's probably going to be the uh, the extent of my racing. I'm more of a tourer and interacting with, you know, the people and nature on, on route. Um, but I, I think it'd be good to push myself a little. Yeah. You tend to miss a lot when you quote unquote race. Like I said, I, I didn't race it. I just tried to, to get, get to the end as quickly as I could. I, you know, not competitive that way. Have you been to Alaska before? Um, barely. I went into the, the kind of panhandle down at Hyder, Alaska up in Northwest in BC. I touched on that on a, a trip I did with a buddy a while ago. We just went in for a day to try and see some of the bears. Um, it was We were a little late. The salmon season had just finished. So yeah, this one's been on the radar for some time and I'm going to try ride a little around that Denali Loop Road and then uh, down I think it's about, I mapped it out, about 800 miles down to Skagway via um, Whitehorse and Carcross where there's um, there's also some really cool single track um, built by local First Nation folks. Okay. And um, I'm going to try stopping there. I think I may have mentioned it the other night we chatted. Um, I did some economic development work with the Carcross Tagish First Nation there. And, I, you know, their trails have become, they've got some world renown now. So I'd love to stop in there and ride a little on the way down to the ferry. And then Trans Vancouver Island down to Victoria and down, um, right. I'll pick up the BC Trail. Out back home, just about back home, and then I'm dropping into this Orogenesis route, which is another one of the well, the 
the bikepackingroots.org cruise um, creations. That's awesome. I was going to say, yeah. I, I love Alaska. I, I, I rode bikes up there in, um, in 2014. I went up for the uh, single speed world championships. Oh, cool. Where was that? That was in Anchorage that year. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And uh, it was a it was a party. It was, man, it was so much fun. It's so much fun to ride like to ride single track, and you're surrounded by single speeders, and there's like thirty or forty of you in the woods, and everyone's just so fit and fast. Like the people who ride up there are just so they're beasts. But we rode. Um, if you're out there, I mean, obviously you're on your route. But we rode. I think it was called Lost Lake, and it was down towards Seward. And uh, yeah, that's on the route. Yeah, is it? and Russian. Russian Pass. Um, I think yeah, so. Yeah, that's where most of the single track is. Yeah, it goes down through Seward and Homer. Yeah, it's, it was a bit of a a bit of a hike a bike up, but you get into the Alpine so fast, and then um, I'll maybe I'll send you send some pictures. Maybe it's the same Sweet. area, but man, yeah, we got up there and it's just this beautiful kind of meadow. It just cuts between these two ranges, and then it was just and you drop down towards Seward just to this parking lot, but the. It was like riding in the rainforest, but you're in the Alpine. It was really weird. It was so lush and ferns and, oh, wow. man, I'd love to go back to Alaska. It's amazing. That's sweet. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen some pics. It looks, of that route, I'm sure, I, I think I know where you're talking about. It's some pretty sweet single track. About 70% of that route is single track. It apparently links up the best single track in Alaska. So it's a pretty, should be a pretty sweet, it's oh, pretty, yeah. pretty yeah that's amazing yeah. so let's go back to the wild west route like mm. so you said your favorite was the north part of it was yeah that, that sort of yeah i think so um i mean there were a lot of trees you rode a lot of logging <laughs> roads but the, the green the tunnel mountain, right just like the green <laughs> yeah. yeah i think i think the biggest um one of the there's some five thousand foot passes and you're riding logging routes roads like half a day. I think I rode uphill one day for six hours wow. on a 5,000 foot climb. And then, um, yeah, then you dropped into this really cool area. It's called the Magruder Corridor. It's an old Nez Perce tra- trading route, a First Nation trading route, which became a kind of more resources route because there's a lot of mining history there. Um, and it's now popular with all the four by four people, the people who go jeeping. I didn't know it was a verb form. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there's people with Jeeps with six-inch lift kits, and there's guys on these enduro like motocross bikes. And then I'm the guy on my mountain bike puts in away through this thing. But super cool area, right through these big wilderness areas. And um, yeah, and then that sawtooth area I mentioned is super cool. You can't ride obviously in the wilderness area, but you sort of skirt it from Stanley and round through some of those areas, and that was really cool terrain. So yeah, that was that section was a lot of fun. So how many days were you out there? Um, so I was on it just over three months, um, and that included the the sort of loop I did out to Boise, which was an eight day. And then I had to slow it down a little because I uh, I took a few extra rest days in the week or two leading up to that because I I had a fixed date when my friend was coming down. So you know you could comfortably do this thing touring in two two and a half months, but. You know, I, I kind of like to stop and, you know, go and ride and spit a single track or stop and go hiking. And I kind of like doing some different stuff. And also, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not as young as some of these folks doing it. So I tried to take like a rest day a week on average. So okay. I'd ride like six days and take the seventh. And I caught amazingly some music festivals. I caught like a bluegrass festival, nice. and a blues festival. And so, you know, I, I, 
I just found out about them and um, planned a couple nights and a rest day. So it was fantastic, you know, to just, um, it was just preservation. If you're going to ride for three months, I didn't want to blow out the knees or do anything yeah. stupid. So I kind of just tried to uh, just look after the body and, and, and do a, just a new moderate sort of moderate pace. So tell me, um, tell me a story. Tell me a story from the trail. <laughs> what happened? Um, yeah, you might want to be well. You should maybe be more specific, but hmm. um, I don't know. I don't not, not just something that really, like if I if someone says, "Oh, tell me what what was your what was the most impactful part of that trip for you?" What was that? Huh. Um. So maybe I'll preface this with um, because I've done a few little uh, PowerPoint presentations to some local folks here, and and um, I tried to distill a three month journey. One of them is actually um, have you heard of Pecha Kucha at all? I think so. It's a it's an international movement where people get together to basically share stories through images, and you have twenty images uh, and twenty seconds per image, so you have six minutes or something to talk, and it's relentless because it's on auto program, so you have twenty <laughs> per image, right? Bang, it doesn't matter; bang, the slides bang. just keep rolling. That's funny. So I definitely had to run a few a few uh, a few. Um, runs through my PowerPoint with it set on 20 seconds to get my story down. But I tried to put a story to each slide or paper or picture. And um, anyway, I guess I I, um, I titled my presentation um, "In Search of Trail Magic: Riding Like Mountain Biking the Wild West Route from Canada and Mexico." And if I ever did get round to writing a book, that's what I'd call it. I did keep a journal. But I guess I I my my trip was. I, I, I like looking for trail magic, and I have a um, have a, a definition which I I had plenty of time to ponder while I was riding, and I think for me the trail magic I'm looking for, and I seem to find it everywhere, or it finds you, however you choose to view it, is um, it's the unique energy that's generated at the three-way intersection of human-powered travel, wild landscapes, and people. And and that's as best I could distill it. And so, in many ways, the um, you know we had an awesome route guide. We had good maps. I've told you my sort of logic of ten k's per uh, per hour on average. And so, if you can get that stuff under control, um, and you're not worrying about logistics and just carry a little bit of extra water and you know a little bit of extra food, you can just be totally open to experience whatever comes along, whether it's the landscape or the people. Or sometimes it's just you and the road, and um, yeah, it was. Um, there was some pretty amazing stories. One of the the coolest um, is, um, and I actually saw. I sent you my Facebook stuff, and you uh, you liked one of my posts about Sedona, yeah, because I thought you'd get a little. So you only heard a little bit of the story in that post, but um, I hit Sedona, and it was just frenetic. I don't like tourist traps, and I got the hell out. But it's actually quite hard. You're a bit of a refugee trying to camp in Sedona because they only allow RVs, or you can go and camp on the outskirts, sort of on the the, the sort of BLM land or national forest land. But there's no water, and so this the southern section there, the water is a bit of an issue. And I needed a full day of water for the next day, so a local guy had pointed me towards some area where he thought I could camp. It was down near this river, so I booted out of there. I had a long day. And I got in after sunset, and of course there were all these brand new no camping signs everywhere because Sedona's obviously become such a hub. And so I putted around, and I couldn't find anywhere to camp. And eventually I went back to this day use area, and I was like, you know what? It's seven o'clock, and I was pitch dark. I'm going to just crash here and uh, get the hell out early in the morning because there's water. And 
and boom, there's a camp post, massive fifth wheel right at the entrance. And I'm, uh, I'm just like, screw it. I'm knocking the door and I'm asking if I can stay here. And it's just the nicest guy. And I uh, said, look, I'm kind of low on water. I'm riding this big route and I need water for tomorrow. Like, do you mind if I just camp here and I'll be out going to go and like, Phew. No problem. He said, we've got some, you know, there's another few ladies camping here around the fire. And he said, do you need anything? I'm going to town for groceries. Super nice guy. So uh, anyway, I set up camp and he showed me where to swim and where the water was. It's a great little place. And he said, no, I need to introduce you to the neighbors. And there was this First Nation lady and she was from the Hopi tribe. We had this amazing visit that night, Steve. It was just magical. We sat around the fire. The stars were, were out and clear. There was a full moon. And she would just tell me stories. I didn't really need to ask her any questions. But um, she'd actually lived with some of the traditional Hopi people. And there's sort of the traditional and the progressives. And the traditional people live out on the mesas there down in the desert. And they won't even drill wells because they don't want to disturb the land. So they live off these springs. And they have for centuries and she'd spent like up to two years with the traditionalists and then the, the more modern people were um were interested in development and you know commerce and whatever and she said it was quite divided but um along the way she um she showed me some of her drawings because she was doing some art and she told me about the trail of tears and a lot of the first nation history and uh anyway, somewhere along the way she said you know one day I was sitting there looking at the at the clouds and I saw I saw fish swimming in the clouds and, and she gets her phone and she flips through all the pictures and she pulls this picture of these clouds and Steve I kid you not there were there were trout swimming in the clouds like this wasn't like clouds that looked like fish these were like fish swimming in the clouds now she wouldn't have known what Photoshop is like like, this wasn't a photoshopped image like but there were there were trout swimming in the clouds and like this was some of the trail magic it was pretty amazing you know and you kind of dialed into the the landscape and the people and the wilderness and yeah this was it, it was it was it was pretty cool that's a that's a great story i'm glad i asked you to tell the story <laughs> yeah i did read a bit about that on <laughs> thank there. you you know I, I again i don't have a lot of experience but uh, it, it's funny that i've never had a bad experience with people Oh, like, they just hey i'm just i just got to find my charger keep going I'm, oh for I'm sure gone. um yeah. but yeah it just seems like the fact that you you're self-supported on a bike and they can kind of tell you know that you're you're out there on your own and you don't have food and shelter well you'll have limited food and shelter i don't know if people just not not no take pity that's the wrong word but they just see when they want to help you they're like what do you need do you need some food yeah. do you need water yeah you know like uh, there, there is a, you know, there is some humanity left, you know, where people aren't just trying to steal your stuff, you know, they want to help you, right? Well, and there was some, there were some other questions, right? When people found me in remote areas, they were asking me, so, are you packing? You know, there's a lot of, like, isn't it dangerous out there? And I'm like, I got bear spray and a little knife. That's about it, you know. And I said, my. I quote a, a country song, which there's a line that says, I believe most people are good. And I'm like, you know what? I kind of think they are. And that's what I experienced. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, I think it's true. Did you have any mechanicals out there? Actually, surprisingly few. Um, I was yeah, a little lucky. I'm, I'm quite proactive on the maintenance. Mm. I, I ride a pretty simple rig. Um, it's specifically so I don't have a lot of maintenance. 
Um, I got one, and I ride tubeless. Um, I had one kind of slow leak, which I was battling to 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 fix, and my tires were kind of a bit worn. I, I had to replace them halfway down, and then um, uh, I got a bit of a, a headset rattled right down near Tucson, and I put in a new uh, headset bearing. And, and I mean, I changed at halfway at Park City. I actually put on new tires and a whole new drivetrain because I'd. Um, I mean, you ride in dirt all the time, and mm. I was probably four or five thousand kilometers into that drivetrain, and so right. most of my maintenance was proactive. And I was glad, um, like that is the Wild West route. Like it's pretty out there. Um, there were definitely some days at maybe seventy miles between towns. If I had a mechanical, I couldn't fix. I wasn't going to have enough water to walk mm. out of there, and it was the middle of nowhere. So I was pretty um, was pretty proactive on my maintenance and, and always tried to carry a little bit of extra. Like I usually have a two-liter on the bottom, and uh, that was kind of like my reserve tank. I tried not to go to it too often. Right. That was like backup if I got stuck in the middle of nowhere. I, I could I could probably walk out or at least last a day or two on that, you know. So, yeah, I, I try to be proactive, and I didn't really have any major mechanicals, fortunately. That's a good tip about the water, actually, is just have that under your down tube and just leave it there and don't touch it. Just yeah. fill your other bottles and just leave that yeah. liter or two down there. That's a good tip, actually. Yeah, I mean, look, the the if you're trying to race, like you don't want to be carrying the extra, you know, two kilo or whatever, but it's um, it was kind of my insurance policy. Um, and and actually in the southern part of the route, Kurt said there's a couple, two or three more water spots, but the, all the water places up on the plateaus listed as potential water, I, I definitely didn't count on. And sure enough, they either weren't there or they were like really rancid with like knee deep, but cows everywhere and cow mm. poop. And so, you know, I, uh, yeah, I always tried to carry a little bit extra because you can doesn't matter if you run out of food, you can survive, but the water, you can't last too long if you have a like a full-on major mechanical that you can't ride in your pushing. So what do you use to treat your water? On that trip, I um, I took a, um, it's, it's uh, the Platypus Gravity Works. It's not a, it's a filter, but not a pump filter. It's a gravity feed filter. Yeah. So, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I so use a the, Sawyer. I, I just use a little Sawyer uh, yeah, mini. So, yeah. So this is, you have the gallon dirty water um, collector, and then you have the, sorry, it's a, it's a gallon, yeah, four liter, and then you have a, a four liter clean water, um, which it gravity feeds into. Mm -hmm. So you, it's maybe three or 400 grams, um, but you it also, the four liter clean water gave me up to my 10 liter water capacity. So it kind of had multiple purposes. The only thing is, um, there's not really a way to fix them or like clean them. Like a filter, you can pull the filter out and scrub it or whatever. At a certain point, it just quit working on me, and right. I had Aquatips as backup. And then in Park City, which was halfway, I tried to uh, get a replacement. Well, it's just about impossible. And I actually went down to REI the next day. That the, the nice guy I'd met at the bike store, I stayed at his place, and we went into REI, and I bought a replacement. But um, I think for my next trip, I'm actually going to be switching to a SteriPen. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I'd, I'd be inclined to stay away from those just because they're battery operated. Yeah, so, yeah, this is an interesting debate. I currently have the battery operated one, and it runs on four AA's. My GPS runs on two AA's, and my headlamp runs on four AAA's. And so... Um, 
you're carrying batteries carry. anyway. <laughs> you, you've always got a few, and you could yeah. always mix and match for if sure. you needed to. Um, what I am looking at is switching to the SteriPen Ultra, which is about half the weight, and it's USB charged. Perfect. And then I do carry uh, about a ten or twelve thousand milliamp a backup battery, which I use if my GPS goes down. Then I'd use that for charging the phone, and then I could use the phone GPS. Right. And that way, you could also charge the uh, SteriPen. So I'm I'm thinking of switching to the SteriPen Ultra for this next trip. Interesting. What I really like about the um, the Sawyer, um, I love that thing, and um, you just back flush it. So you, it'll do like 40,000, I think it's gallons. It'll say it'll do 40,000 gallons of water through that thing. And then it does come with a syringe that you can back flush with. Usually you can go on a weekend trip and you don't really have to worry about it. Obviously you, you try to draw from, from clean sources, like yeah. you know, clear sources. Yeah. But, uh, um, yeah, that's the only thing about it. And I actually found a, a Camelback brand water bottle and it'll fit on the nipple of the Sawyer so I can use my clean water and back flush the the other side you can't well you guess you could sanitize you could bring a couple you could bring a little bit of bleach if you wanted to and you could bleach it yep. up but uh yeah the steripen thing um and are they fragile i've used it on a few trips it's got a little bit of a sort of neoprene padded case and i keep it in my um sort of egress pocket at the front so I, which is somewhat padded and so i don't bang it around um I always carry the aqua tabs as backup. Um, yeah, it's there's pros and cons to all these things. As always, one of the things I really liked about the the platypus is if you're on the road for three months, like that soya squeeze thing's a bit of a pain to get like a liter and a half. I could basically scoop a gallon when I got in, right. hanging in the tree while I'm putting up my tent. I've got a gallon for the evening for cooking, whatever. I scoop another gallon maybe that night or in the morning and then I do breakfast and then you can cook oats and whatever so you don't like because you've got plenty of water and then scoop another gallon so I could set off with with um like with a gallon for the day. Right. So you know you've used it three times and you've you've basically filtered like twelve liters of water right. for three scoops. Yeah. So you know, try doing that long term with like screwing around with a liter or two at a time. It's yeah. a bit of a pain in the in the butt. So that was part of my logic. You know, for a weekend trip it doesn't matter. Or use those little those little squeeze ones, you know, like there's the MSR squeeze pump thing or whatever, right. but yep. good for a liter or two. But yeah, try getting a gallon, like at least at night and maybe a gallon or two in the morning. It's, it's a bit of work. I've heard of people uh, hooking the, the Sawyer Mini up to drum bags and just hanging them from the trees and the, the water pressure in a gallon will actually push its way through the Sawyer Mini. Right. So okay. you can actually gravity feed it if you want. You can actually do that. Sweet. Yeah. Look into that. I don't know. I might, yeah. I might look into that because... I, you know, the, the, the races up here in BC, there's so much water everywhere. Right. So it's not a big concern, but I do need to get my water game improved. If I'm going to go into these desert, you know, high and lowlands where there's no water anywhere. Yeah. Well, the irony actually in, in the desert is you're not filtering much. I barely use my filter. Oh, interesting. Because you're basic, unless you can find like there's springs or groundwater, there's usually nothing, especially late in the season when I wrote it. So essentially what you're doing is filling up like at a campground or a town, right. four, six, you know, max 10 liters the one time, right? Um, and then you just boot it right. to the next water source and then you've got filtered water anyway um, in the southern states. So actually, ironically, I used my filter a lot less in the desert. Oh, funny. That's so funny. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, well, I guess if you can get the resupply and just keep refilling, yeah. you know, it's yeah. just a matter of finding, did you carry a pack? Obviously, you carried a pack on that, right? 
No, actually. You didn't, didn't have to, hey? Well, I've played around with the rig. Um, I did for the first four weeks, and then I, I had the opportunity. My friend came and joined me to do the Smoke and Fire 400. I sent it back with her. Um, and I just, you sweat a lot more with it on your back. Yeah. And I find on the long days, like eight, ten hours, I know you do the long days, if you ride with it, I find by like mid-afternoon, by three or four, you start getting this pain between your traps, just from even, and I had it with a two or three liter camelback, so I used that for my kind of part of my water supply, and then you could resupply and throw like a loaf of bread and, you know, some stuff from a resupply in there, but yeah, I just, um, I downsized a few things, and I, um, I got more water onto my frame, essentially, and I was like, I don't really want to ride with a pack anymore. So I think my next step is I'm going to get one of those really small Cedar Summit things. They fold up the parent, and the new ones are about the size of an egg. It's yeah, an oh, an egg, damn. Done. The new ones now are like, they're literally the size you can see on their website. Yeah, and, I was just uh, going to say I got one of those, and it's like, it's the size of a mandarin, I think, when I fold it up. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. about, not, not my fist, but like pretty small, yeah. and, they're, and they're, it's yeah. 20 liters. It's fantastic. I haven't used, yep. but my mission, my bike packing mission in, in life is not to carry a pack. I don't want to carry a pack. <laughs> I'm yeah. done. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, if you I sweat, you sweat more, it gives you a little bit of neck pain and, um, yeah, you just like, you just feel free riding without mm. it. And then you also get a bit better airflow, especially yeah. riding hot. Like when it's cold, I don't mind cause it's almost like a little bit of extra insulation, but, um, you kind of get a really sweaty back, which you don't really want all the time. So, the other yeah. side of that debate is that it gives you sun shelter. It, it shelters your back from the direct sun. So it's kind uh, of like, it's kind of like I, I've heard that as well back, you know, you put the pack on, it shelters your back, kind of gives you a little bit of shade. Uh, um, I, I'm a no pack guy. I don't want to carry a pack. <laughs> I'm kind of with you. I, uh, I think I, I'll have to at some stage, like if I get into pack rafting or something, oh, but yeah, for sure. then I'm going to try and avoid it. I think I get a trailer. You bring the trailer back. <laughs> <laughs> I can't see that. No. <laughs> oh, wow. It was great talking to you. Thanks, Steve. Um, do, what else do you have coming on? So you've got this massive tour. How long is that tour going to take? Oh, the next one? Well, I, I'm setting aside two years for this one, oh, which is, um, I think we talked briefly Amazing. the other day. I mean, it's sort of Alaska to Argentina, but I'm this will not be doing every mile. It's more linking up as many bikepacking routes as I can and doing this orogenesis in the States uh, as a scout, trying to patch that together. And then Baja Divide. And then Mexico and Central America, I'm, I mean, it doesn't interest me that much. I'm really interested in South America, but you've got to time the seasons. And so um, somewhere along the way, I'll be learning more Spanish. Doing a, I've got a little bit of volunteer work lined up potentially in La Paz, oh, cool. working with some entrepreneurs. And then the big thrust for, I guess, not this summer, next summer would be to ride the Trans-Ecuador uh, mountain bike route, the dirt road version around the volcanoes, and then try and do the whole Peru divide, which is Peru north to south, crisscrossing the Andes, and probably mix in a little bit of hiking. And then, uh, then I've got potentially this volunteer gig lined up for a couple months. And then I'd like to do central and southern Chile. I've sort of South America is the last continent. I've been to most of the others on climbing or surfing trips. And uh, um, yeah, that'll be the sort of South America full immersion. I should have my Spanish down by then. And um, yeah, that'll be, that's, that's kind of the next, I guess, roughly two years, I think. Yeah. That's amazing. To get away for that long on a bike, it would just be crazy. I was just going to say, I had a, something I was going to say about that. 
I can't remember. No, it doesn't matter. Yeah, the Spanish thing will be great. You've seen, you've watched uh, Johan's videos, right? The Bike Wanderer? Bike Wanderer, yeah. He's been quite an inspiration over yeah. the years. There's a Kiwi couple. Um, the website is hilux.co.nz. Mark and Hannah, they, I, we actually have some mutual friends in Canmore. They've spent the last three years, I think, doing Alaska to Argentina, but they're like – they're every inch, like from they left from Dead Horse, and they're somewhere down in um, Peru right now. Um, they'll probably finish up in the next year. I mean, they're they're remarkable. I definitely ride in their um, tire tracks a bit because they've put some GPS up there and pioneered some routes. But yeah, there's a lot of cool people out there on the road. It'll be pretty fun um, just meeting people along the way. It's um, the uh, search for trail magic will continue, Steve. You know, I would encourage you to journal. And um, do you have a GoPro? No, I, I do journal, um, and I'm considering uh, considering getting on Instagram. I'm not a big social media guy. Like the stuff I put on Facebook last year is really the most I've put on in ever. But it just it is nice to share the journey. You know, when you're out there, and so many people, as you as you said, go out of their way to help you because they see yourself supported. You're carrying hardly anything. Um, you know, the only thing you really have to share with them is your time and your journey. And so, when people are fascinated by your journey, I would just say, well, like, hey, um, let's connect on Facebook if you're interested, because I'm putting up some pics every week or two. And you know, if you're interested in the journey, it's you know, um, and a lot of them were like, oh yeah, I'd love to. So I kind of made a lot of. Facebook friends last year <laughs> on the West route um, just because they were um, they were fascinated by the journey and to me it was at least a way of sharing some of the passion and the experience because I was the lucky guy who got to got to write all of it so yeah I wasn't kind of it wasn't coming from the vein of uh, of like pushing into social networking because I'm I hear you I I'm I'm always on the razor's edge of pulling the trigger and getting off it all but ah. I just I it can't so much is so much is linked in to that yep. but i think more just gopro is so small and you can whip it out and you can just hold it out and do a selfie and say something like oh i'm here i'm there but it'd be really interesting and you could you could basically collect a chronological uh, bunch of data like journal uh videos photos and then when you finish this epic journey you could put it all together and like do a presentation you know, I, I, I don't know. It's cool. I, I lost my GoPro. And I'm, I just, I want another one, but they're so handy for documenting stuff. It might be, and they're, they're light and they're small and USB chargeable. And yeah. That's a good idea. I'll, I'll ponder. I've been pondering trying to up the game, like on the photos, um, either a better cell phone. Like I just, you land up with so many devices, right? I've tried to, I mean, I did last year on just a cell phone and a GPS, no spot tracker, no Kindle, no extra camera. I just kept it simple. Yeah, and I'm still tempted to go that way, but maybe upgrade the phone and which had to a better camera. Yeah, the, you can land up with all these devices that need charging and different batteries, and you know, then you know, there's more to like when you're in poor countries, suddenly you've got all this fancy technology. Yeah, there's that, of course. Value, right? Yeah. And so you know, um, yeah, it's an interesting debate. Which how much electronics do you bring along? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Well. Man, so you're not on social networking, so how do people find you? Um, <laughs> well, I, I am on Facebook. <laughs> I, I have considered, the other thing I've considered, I've gained a lot of info from, you would know the website, Crazy Guy on a Bike. No. Oh, so it's it's actually a, um, 
it's nearly 20 years old. It's a gentleman, uh, Neil Gunton, out of the States somewhere who, um, who created this website to document his trip, his big trip, and then realized it was a great platform for other cyclists to document their trips. So it's, it's a donation only, and I look most years, I think he pulls 40 or 50 grand US just donations. So he's essentially created a, wow. a platform for for cyclists um, and it's set up you can post your pictures your gps and then your daily ride or whatever and it tracks it there's a ton of really good journals there you found it yeah it's it's funny it's so old school it's like totally mozilla you know like you know what it works there's some really good data i've i've enjoyed it over the years and so i may set up a blog on that um again i'm not taking a laptop and i don't want to have to blog i mean i would blog by section maybe like hey this was alaska this was bc this is orogenesis i I wouldn't do it day by day but i don't know i'm i'm not really too much into self-promotion but um yeah for you though for you come come find me on the trail or track me down somehow yeah well you don't have a spot tracker how are we supposed to find you At least get that's, a spot. That's another debate. Yeah. yeah. I know another device to carry. Yeah. Well, yeah. Clee, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, I'm gonna let Likewise. you go. Likewise. Yeah. Thanks for the time, making the time. Oh, yeah. it's my pleasure. Yeah, and we'll uh, we'll keep in touch for sure. Okay. And do you ever do you ever come out here to the Kootenays? Um, I do, but I probably won't in the next sort of six weeks before I take out, take off. I have threatened to come out and ride. Um, one summer, I'd really like to link up the BC Epic 1000, maybe your uh, Lost Elephant thing you've got going on in your region somewhere. Yeah, I talked to those guys a couple of weeks ago. That's a pretty cool route, actually. Yeah, but um, yeah, let's stay in touch. I'll certainly keep you informed of where I am on my journey, and we can maybe touch base somewhere along the way. Um, Absolutely. If you wanted a few installments, maybe that would be hey. one way of keeping people engaged. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good idea, so, actually. You can call me from some remote wood somewhere uh, <laughs> where there's service. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and give you an update from Guatemala or something. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, no. And so, yeah, thanks for making the time. I thought it would be a great opportunity to share this new route with with you know, the, the folks here in Canada and it's totally achievable. I'm, I'm no Superman. I mean, like I said, I go, I go slow, just slow and steady. The real thing is just freeing up the time. I mean, the reason Sam and I did the route, finished the route last year is he took a year off work and I blocked off like three months from my consulting gig and, uh, freed up the time to do it. So it's really just a case of being able to create the time. We'll go and ride small sections. There's some amazing sections and, um, yeah, it's just it's great that there's some new terrain out there for people to ride. It's uh, it's pretty inspiring. Yeah. What a great conversation! Hey, I want to thank Clee and Kurt again for taking time out of their schedules to chat with us. The Wild West route is definitely on my bucket list now, and hopefully all of you are inspired as well. Hey, and don't forget, Rebound Cycle is still offering ten percent off in the store. Just say Bam Bam at checkout to get that discount. The giveaway is still open. So remember to send an email to Tyson at reboundcycle.com. Put Bam Bam in the subject line to enter. Entries will be accepted until the weekend of May 18th. Hey, and don't forget about me. Remember to send me your voice clips, guest suggestions, and feedback to bikepackcanadapodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, my friends, get out there, ride bikes, sleep in the woods, and keep the rubber side down. <laughs>